As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We are about to get some words from the Federal Reserve as they embark on a pivot point of potential inflation, disinflation, and then potentially the end of a hiking cycle after raising rates by 500 basis points. Let's head over to Michael McKee now with the latest. Mike. We have a super hawkish skip. A unanimous Fed, no dissents, leaves the benchmark rate at five to five and a quarter percent. However, the new dot plot shows a new terminal rate of 5.6%, which would be 225 basis point moves or at least 150. 12 of the 18 members of the committee see rates at that level or above. One sees six and a quarter percent. Four see rates moving up only 25 basis points, but only two see no change between now and the end of the year. In their statement, the officials say, holding the target range steady at this meeting allows the committee to assess additional information and its implications for monetary policy. But the very next sentence leads us into it with saying, Instead of saying, in determining the extent to which additional firming may be appropriate, it now reads, in determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. There are also significant changes to the economic assumptions. Unemployment this year projected to reach only 4.1%, down from 4.5%, 4 <clears throat> 4.5% next wow. year and in 2025 down from 4.6. Growth revised up this year to 1% from 4 tenths and lowered by a tenth in the next two years. PCE inflation forecast at 3.2%, <coughs> down from 3.3% this year. Core PCE is revised up this year to 3.9 from 3.6. There are almost no significant changes in inflation for the next two years. The federal funds rate will be cut but not until next year, the summary shows. It will be a big cut as well, a full percentage right. point in 2024, going to 4.6% by the end of next year. They see rates falling to 3.4% in 2025. The statement says the economy has continued to expand at a modest pace, but job gains have been robust and inflation remains elevated. 
While the banking system is sound and resilient, they do expect tighter credit conditions will weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. The extent of those <coughs> effects remains uncertain, it says. And finally, there are no changes to QT, the $95 billion a month roll-off, to repo or reverse repo rates or to counterparty caps. I think what's important here, folks, in the multiple decades that I've known Michael McKee, rarely have I heard that tone of the McKee voice. He has huge perspective on this. And to see the two-year yield, Karen, if you can, bring up the two-year yield right now, which only can be captured by a 14 basis point move to high yields. The y-axis on the two-year yield right now, extraordinary. Equities give back fractionally, but the yield move here, Lisa, is, uh, Mike, stay with us. The yield move here, Lisa, is extraordinary. They're getting the message loud and clear. The Fed <clears throat> wants to go again and quite right. maybe quite significantly. But this, from Drew Mattis of MetLife, he writes in and says, if they knew they were going to be able to go, they would have gone. If they were so convinced that they would need to raise right. rates significantly higher, Carpe diem. Why not today? I mean, Michael McKee, within really an historic dot plot and projection study that you just said, can you say that this is the first time, Michael McKee, where we begin to frame something in the vicinity of 6% for short paper? Well, it's the first time you get anybody suggesting that. We're now over 6% uh, to 6 and a quarter for at least one member, and two think we're going to go somewhere in between that. Uh, so it does look like we're putting it into the ballpark, but still the majority think we're going to end up at 5.6, which is still a significant two moves. Honestly, I just keep going back to this idea. If they wanted to hike eventually and possibly twice more, why not today? The reassessment and potentially the concern out there. Michael McKee, stick with us. We'll be coming back to you as we do see markets on the move very much readjusting to a reality where they possibly want to raise rates by two more times. Just to put, it, put this in perspective, this is the first pause in Fed policy in 15 months. That is where we are. After starting on March 2022 and having raised 500 basis points, right. they did not raise rates, Tom. And you are seeing, though, their indications of further rate right. hikes being bled out into markets, setting them lower. And there's what we talked about this morning as well. This afternoon, the Fed says the FOMC vote was unanimous. At this historic moment, it is good to speak with Diane Swank, chief economist, KPMG, with all sorts of experience here out of Michigan and Midwest and Chicago at economics. Diane, what in God's name is going on? Should they have just raised rates? I actually think that they're really concerned. It's the tension within the Fed that Julia referred to earlier in terms of the diversity of views. Chairman Powell is a much more skittish about what's going to happen in the financial markets and stresses in the financial sector, the banking sector in particular, and not wanting to go too far. That said, this is a Fed that is committed to additional rate hikes. The tricky part of this pause or skip, the Waller skip, as we call it, was messaging it. And this was a very effective way to message, we're going to assess what tightening is out there and how much additional tightening is needed. I want to add that much of financial markets have ignored that many central banks around the world that had paused have had to reassess and go back in. Bank of Australia, mm -hmm. the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of Canada in the recent week, um, ECB, all of these banks looking to think that they were close to a terminal rate, now reassessing that. And I think the Fed doesn't want to look like any pause that it takes is behind mm -hmm. the curve and not continuing that process. In the blur of emotion there from Mike McKee and the data of the projections, 
Diane Swank, was this a Fed of a single mandate? Have they basically said we can't opine on labor because we're solidly under 4%? There is clearly a view that labor markets are extremely tight. They acknowledge that. I'm not at all surprised by the upward revisions to the forecasting growth. The idea that they're still going to get to 4.5% on the unemployment rate, although mild recession is still this sort of softish landing kind of scenario they're trying to reach for. But when you start looking at the other issues mm -hmm. on rate hikes, on how many rate hikes are up, are even in excess of a half percent in this right. year, that really gets to the core mm -hmm. of the issue of how hawkish they think they're going to have to be to T-rail, what's become a more persistent global inflation, mm -hmm. underlying inflation. After the shock of this, folks, equities deteriorate down negative 346, <coughs> SPX down. That's okay, Dan. I cough like that all the time. Um, <laughs> SPX down half a percent. And I really want to say that the two-year yield, my litmus paper this afternoon, uh, continues to move to a higher uh, yield. We've got a shocking 16, almost 17 basis point move. That's a ginormous move for those keeping score at home. Lisa? And I'm watching real yields, basically inflation-adjusted <coughs> the market's perception of inflation over two years, surging to the highest going back to 2009, nearly 2.7% in terms of real yield. So it gives you a sense of the tightening as we move forward. Diane, we were talking about how Chair Powell doesn't necessarily want to uh, fractionalize his committee. He wants to keep people on the same page. And because of the varying views was why they didn't go. Is that uncertainty good or is it bad for a Federal Reserve setting policy at such an uncertain time? I think I actually agree with Julie on this. I mean, the idea of having, first of all, he's been remarkably successful at corralling the cats. That's just something he is very good at doing. That said, the diversity of views when you're trying to calibrate policy, very hard to do. And given the uncertainties we face, is healthy. And I think what Julia pointed out, if we had gotten a dissent, what we did is he usurped a dissent by making this a very hawkish statement, basically guaranteeing a July rate hike as well. That was his way of buying time. That was a compromise cut. So he did not get a dissent at this meeting. But I do think it is healthy to understand where the spectrum of views are, given the uncertainty and the unprecedented nature. I hate even using that word anymore, but we all know it. Julia did a very good job of saying how many things are all integrating to try to understand this environment. But having that spectrum of views on the Fed and the diversity of views within the Federal Reserve is a strength of the Fed, not a weakness. Just to rehash, if you're just joining us now, the Fed did not hike, but it was a super hawkish skip, according to Michael McKee. Looking at a median rate forecast for the end of this year, 5.6%. That is up from about 5% right now. It also sees at the end of 2024 rates being at 4.6%, definitely seeing a tilt upwards as they signal two more rate hikes by year end. Diane, I'm curious from your vantage point, does that seem realistic based on the economic slowing and the disinflation that you're <clears throat> seeing, that that is what's required to truly bring inflation to the 2% target? Well, it is our forecast, so we expect them to raise rates both in July and in September yeah, and get say. to that half percent up. And I think that's important because the resilience that we've seen, even though inflation has cooled dramatically, which is wonderful, a lot of it has been concentrated <clears throat> in food and energy prices. Again, very important for consumers. But remember, why did the Bank of Canada go back in? Because they saw a bottoming in the housing market that could mean additional inflation down the road in shelter costs. We're experiencing something very similar in right. the United States. At the same time, 
that core services inflation has proven sticky, not just in the U.S., but globally, even in Europe, where they've had a mm -hmm. technical recession now. Just joining us, Diane Swan, KPMG, with us right now, Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keene, on a meeting that is not a snooze fest. You heard it from our Michael McKee, an extraordinary and truly super hawkish statement. That is Mr. McKee's language. I'm going to take 5.6% on the terminal rate. Let's round it up collegially to 6%. You can do that in biology. It's not biology, but we'll go there. Michael Gapin with us, U.S. Economist, Bank of America, and of course, Michael Collins, Sr. We only book Michaels today. Is that how it works? <laughs> exactly. Well, Michael Collins with us at PGM Fixed Income as well. Michael Gapin, I got to go right to the terminal rate. It seems like we're flying blind. Does Bank of America have to adjust a money market fund of 5, 5.1, 5.2%? And are we migrating towards a 5.6, 5.8, dare I say 6% short term piece of paper? It certainly looks that way, Tom. I think you could add to that story a whole bunch of Treasury bill issuance coming uh, in in a hurry. So T bill yields as well as other money market yields. Um, look, I think five point six is is where the Fed is wanting to go. I to answer your earlier question, if if I may pose it to myself, um, yeah, they should have hiked today, um, but I think they got stuck on timing at the end, and market pricing wasn't where they wanted, mm -hmm. and maybe it would have been a little too disruptive to try and squeeze that in. Uh, at the end. So we get, I think, what it will be a difficult message, which is for some reason we saw enough to pause today, but we've also seen enough to tell you we think we need to do right. two more rate hikes. Michael Collins, I flunked not one, not two, but three exams over the word disintermediation. And what that means to me is not chaos, but just uncertainty and discontinuities within the global fixed income space. Does the shock of this decision is super hawkish? Does it put a little bit of tension into the fixed income markets PGM looks at? Yeah, absolutely, um, Tom. You know, we've been thinking the risk to the market pricing, which, as you know, have been pricing a lot of rate cuts starting by the end of this year. We thought the risk was that those would uh, be taken off the table. Uh, and sure enough, this really hawkish forward-looking dot plot uh, does that. So the, the big kind of bear steepening or flattening we're seeing in the yield curve is lined up with our positioning, fortunately, and, and is really, um, to me, uh, what the Fed should be doing and is expected. Michael Gapin, you were talking, first of all, happy birthday uh, on this Fed Thank day you. to you. You were talking about how the Fed didn't raise rates because the market wasn't aligned and they kind of ran out of time. Was that the right call, given the fact that they want tightening financial conditions to help them get to their goal? Look, I think I think in general, as a policymaker, you do not want to surprise markets with rate hikes. So I think that is the right base point of view. But I also think the data moved quickly against them just at the end of the intermeeting period. We had upward revisions to construction spending and trade, which puts Q1 growth at 2%, very strong employment report. You know, I, I think you have to you're going to get a significant market reaction today anyway. Um, you know, I, I, I think they probably if they had another week, they would have they would have pushed us all into a hike in June. Michael Collins, I'm looking right now at the projection of 5.6% rates by the end of this year, two more rate hikes and 4.6% by the end of the following year. I keep asking this. Is this realistic based on the slowdowns that we're seeing in different areas? Do you think that they will actually achieve this? And if they don't, what kind of credibility are they sacrificing? Yeah, I think what they really uh, need to do, Lisa, is try to convince the markets that they'll at least keep this funds rate where it is, somewhere in the, the low to mid fives for longer 
than the markets are pricing in. Uh, sending this more more hawkish message certainly does that, right? And the markets are readjusting, as Tom said, uh, to this higher yielding uh, world. So I think that's the the right message, the right move. But ultimately, I don't think they'll be able to get two more rate uh, hikes off. Uh, ultimately, I don't think they'll be able to have a, mm -hmm. a Fed funds rate, you know, in the mid to high fours or fives uh, for, for more than the next uh, year or so. So I think ultimately yeah. you will see uh, more cuts. But for now, I mean, rates are going to stay higher for a little longer than was priced in. I think that's that's the right message. Diane Swank with us as well. I want to go to all three of you on this. I think it's so important. Ms. Swank, I, I, I want to look at the dot plot. And you know I'm not a fan of it. I, you know, I took Richard Berner 101, and I'm just not a fan of all this verbiage. I look at 23, and okay, there's sort of a cohesion cohesion to it. I look at 25, it's a lesser cohesion. The dot plot right now in 2025, Diane Swank, is a complete mess. There's no cohesion. It's basically a linear point estimate from low to high. Diane Swank, is the dot plot broken? I think the dot plot's been broken for a long time. I don't think it's the most effective thing, and I think the Fed knows that. It's really more short-term than long-term, but it really underscores the uncertainty that we face out there. And I will add one more reason of why the Fed paused at this particular meeting, that Treasury issuance issue. That is something they wanted to get over the hump on. And remember, we start to get corporate tax revenues in tomorrow, which may be able, depending on how, you know, day before the Fed makes this decision on how fast Treasury issuance have to go, this is another thing that that Chair Powell himself, I think, was working to get some space around. But I also think it's really important to understand that so far around the world, central banks have underestimated the ability of the transmission effect of higher rates and their economies. Their economies have proven much more resistant to rate hikes than they thought they were. They thought they'd happen on a real-time basis. There were estimates out there that this would be almost real-time and the lags would disappear. Two things are happening. One is governments intervene to dampen the effect, particularly after Russia invaded Ukraine, of higher inflation, which extended out the period of inflation and dampened the effect of higher rates. But it also has put us in this situation where central banks are now having to go back in. And the concern is that we could get a reacceleration or a more entrenched inflation. And that's why this is so hawkish. And Michael Gapin, when you write about this, and again, I'm going to go out 18 months to the, to the, the craziness of beginning 2025 with a dot plot that's absolutely original and from, I'm going to call it Bullard High to whoever low, ghouls below, whatever. I'm just guessing there, folks. But Michael Gapin, as you write for the Bank of America, what's the single biggest mystery to you in the GDP equation? What's the mystery that's going to come out of this press conference? In the short run, I would say that what surprised me and I think others has been how much labor supply has has grown and responded in 2023. The massive surge in immigration, uh, the the pickup in la in the labor force, the shortfall between labor supply and labor demand has narrowed quickly. As Diana said, it's meant the labor market has held up, spending has held up, and there's a lot more resilience in in the economy. And as Lisa mentioned, maybe it's even adding to that excess saving argument uh, just because of higher higher income. Uh, the further we go to we go out, it's we don't know how quickly inflation is going to come down. And I think that 2025 distribution tells you the median of that means absolutely nothing. There's no weight to that middle. The committee simply mm -hmm. doesn't know. 
Uh, we're on radio and television. We welcome all of you across this nation and worldwide. Michael McKee has gone into the hermetically sealed press conference. And you'll see that in about 11, maybe 12 uh, minutes here. Lisa, we've not talked about something. Liz Young, thank you so much at SF for bringing this up out on uh, Twitter. The steepening of a Priya Misra-like uh, 10 spread here out to 93 basis points. Let's remind ourselves of how ginormous. This is a Michael McGapin taught me this word. <laughs> It's a ginormous curve inversion that we see re, redone today, re, re, redone today. 92 basis points of inversion that we're looking at right now. Not quite the uh, record high for, or record low, I should say, for the cycle of 107, but nonetheless uh, highlighting how higher near-term rates are really not coherent with the long-term rates that are going down. I'm also looking at the uh, rate expectations going out by September, 5.3%. By January now, the implied Fed funds rate is 5 5.2%. Michael Collins, how do you play this? Do you lean into the long-term yield story with this idea that the Fed will necessarily bring inflation down at whatever cost to growth? Absolutely. A, a really hawkish Fed, Lisa, this late in the cycle when you're already seeing evidence of growth and demand and inflation uh, slowing is definitely bullish for the long end. It means that they will uh, by hook or by crook, control inflation, right? They are adamant about that. I think uh, they're very uh, convincing to the market. So this big kind of um, uh, flattening we're seeing in the market is is definitely evidence of that. And I, I think, um, you know, long-term rates are, are pretty much capped here. Do you think, Michael Collins, that there's going to be an issue with riskier credit as the Fed does double down and as you start to see pretty significant refinancing costs as time goes on? Yeah, no, no doubt, right? I mean, this does take a little bit of of time, right? These long, uh, th these high rates for longer will eventually bite. As more and more companies, more and more commercial, you know, real estate mortgages, more and more individuals, more and more governments have to refinance their debt at these higher rates, you will see <clears throat> tremendous right. dispersion in the markets. You'll see weaker credits, more levered companies, uh, companies exposed uh, to floating rate. Uh, debt really start to suffer here. And that's that's part of the, the Fed's intention, right, to, to weaken demand and weaken the economy. And you'll see it in the, in the you know, lower end consumers, lower end corporations. And you're going to see that dispersion really accelerate late in the cycle here. Zeitgeist check on a Wednesday afternoon. If you're just joining us nine minutes away from the McKee press conference. And this I just think is great. I guess I brought it up in a question to someone. I can't, I can't remember what I did five minutes before, folks. Drew Mattis, you said, was listening over at MetLife. And here's Andrew Hollenhorst, of course, who's been historic and calling for a higher rate regime. Memo, Hollenhorst looks like a genius this afternoon. Uh, may I quote uh, the gentleman from UCLA, seconding Mr. Mattis, why not just hike, exclamation point. Thank you, Andrew, for watching. A big question. Diane Swank, do you want to take that? What is the indication here? Is it that they just didn't have the consensus or is this something more? And does this basically mean, especially if they do raise rates, that a soft landing looks a little less likely today than it did yesterday? I think all of the above. I think the reason that they took a pause is because the chairman himself is getting more skittish about this, and we saw that come out in the May press conference. I think he got a lot of pushback within his committee, 
and that's what we're seeing, is that pushback. I do think the time ran out on them in terms of shaping market expectations. Their last part of their open period where they could comment, they basically said, we're going to skip. That shaped market expectations, so it would have been a surprise to raise height rates here. That said, it does not preclude a half percent hike in July instead of a quarter percent hike in July. And I think that's something we're going to see come out in the press conference today as well. The biggest question out there will be, why didn't you do it today? I do think that the Fed will also, Chairman Powell will talk about the Treasury issuances and that extraordinary going on, those extraordinary issuances against the backdrop of quantitative tightening. People forget that the Fed did not stop quantitative tightening. And this is something that we really don't know the interaction of. We've never done this experiment. And that is also something that's in the back of his mind. And I would expect that he'll emphasize that we're still being restrictive by also continuing quantitative tightening at the same time that Treasury has to do this massive debt issuance. We're looking at equities uh, off pretty considerably after this release. We're looking at NASDAQ down seven-tenths of a percent. Michael Gapin, do you think the Fed is happy to see risk assets selling off today? Yes, in general. I mean, I think financial conditions, they've struggled to get them across the board as restrictive as, as they would like. And so I think obviously if you're if you're going to move the dot 50 basis points higher, I think the intent is to tighten financial conditions. So yes, I, I think that this is what they would want to see. Uh, Michael, let me go to I, I, this. This lineup's great today. Michael Collins, Michael Gape, and Diane Swank. And of course, we'll have much more here in six minutes with the press conference. And Michael Gapin, I'm just going to pick on you because of the large platform of Bank of America. I'm supposed to, you know, I, I'm with Elizabeth Warren on this. I think having a low unemployment rate is generally good for society. And are we in a panic about a super hawkish Fed because just possibly real GDP and an overlay of inflation is a buoyant nominal GDP? Are they bad things? No, I, it's, maybe it's too much of a good thing, might might be one of the arguments. I mean, certainly the inflation we got, Tom, as you know, wasn't all because of a tight labor market. There were there were other sources that that drove it. And I, I would say in, mm -hmm. in our projection and most people's projections of a so-called mild recession or, or downturn in the economy brings the unemployment rate up to the mid fours. Very few people are thinking it goes above five. The 30-year average unemployment rate is over six. So I think we're just saying a little less, say, buoyancy, right. if you will, is probably the right mix for the long-run performance right. of the economy. Nobody can doubt that a low unemployment rate is is good for Americans and, and job seekers. I, I, but I think on yeah. balance, or I should say a different balance is probably preferred. Uh, John from Capri emails, and John, thank you for listening this afternoon. He says, go to Michael Collins and ask a financial question. Michael Collins, you're at PGM. How will chief financial officers react to a super hawkish Fed where Hollenhorst and Mattis are just saying they should have raised rates to begin with? Does that goose issuance here through the summer? You know, no, it's it's actually uh, just just the opposite. What we're seeing is really encouraging, right? When when markets change and conditions change, people and companies change their behavior, Tom. And we're actually seeing a lot of corporations uh, put off debt issuance. In fact, we're seeing a lot of them use their free cash flow to pay down debt so they don't have to reissue their debt at a much higher coupon. And that's really a silver lining here, right? As a, as a credit investor, someone investing in corporate debt, you really want them to, to see them pay down debt. And we're actually seeing uh, more and more examples of that. So that actually might be the uh, thing that saves us here and really helps us avoid 
an existential credit crisis, which which uh, looks looks better and better. You know, you won't see a big spike in defaults because companies are being proactive and and they see the writing on the wall and they're and they're starting to pay down debt. So this is a, a really good story from a credit perspective. Michael Collins, this now becomes a guessing game. What's the Fed going to do in July? And oh yeah, what are they going to do in September? And it becomes a credibility issue. What will you have to look for and what will you have to see to call their bluff and say no, you're not. You're not going to go twice more before year end. Yeah, I mean, right now they're telling us they're going to change their policy from hiking at every meeting to basically hiking at every other meeting, right? So they're going to hike, you know, twice uh, in the rest of the year, once a quarter, basically slow the pace of hiking is what they're telling us. Again, I, I think it, the longer they wait, the more evidence will become apparent in the markets, uh, in the economy, uh, and in the inflation data that will cause them to step to the sidelines and probably pull off one more right. hike, uh, if, if that, for the rest of the year. Michael Gapin, what will the real tenure do here? I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the super hawkish nature of the printed word and the projections that we saw. Does the tenure yield, real yield finally break out from 1.6 just back to my pre-COVID level of, say, 2.02, 2.05? Do we get finally the real yield to move? I mean, I, I certainly I I, in the front end, meaning kind of out to five years, I think that real rate has to go higher. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not yet fully convinced it would have to move in that direction for, for the tenure, right? I, if you've okay. become more convinced today that the Fed, as you mentioned earlier, is, is just really reacting to inflation, not so much economic activity, then the message here is they want to bring inflation down. Uh, so you get kind of the inversion uh, at play. So certainly, though, they're telling you real rates need to be higher over the next two to three years. Diane, how political do you think the decision will be to raise rates even further from here, given that the focus really is on wages and employment? That's a great question. And I think the political backlash is already out there. First of all, the reason we're not as euphoric about the low unemployment we have is because we've lost living standards and actually lost spending power to inflation. And so that's the challenge the Fed's already had to face. What's been amazing is, you know, even Volcker blinked back in 1980 and reduced rates then boosted them by 10 percent to get a second recession in 1982 after the first recession in 1980, which was an election year. So I do think there is going to be some political backlash to this idea of raising unemployment, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, the Fed is really concerned about the persistence of inflation. And at the Fed's comp at the right conference, it's not just why did you go not go today? <clears throat> is the optionality on the table to move a half percent oh. again at an upcoming meeting? They do not want to bake into the cake this idea that they'll only move every other meeting. That messaging right. is where I'm really going to be watching for, because I think the Fed wants all options on the table. You three have been generous with your time. Back to your clients at KPMG, at the Bank of America, and of course at PGM as well. Diane Swank, Michael Gapin, and Michael Collins. And all of a sudden, the snooze fest became, and you heard it in McKee's voice. You know, McKee, made, you could just hear the shock of the language and what we heard from Mr. Madison, uh, Dr. Hollenhorst as well. This was surprisingly hawkish, if you want to say so, because people were perhaps anticipating a 25 basis point rate hike implied at the July meeting, but not 50 basis points of hikes yeah. before year end. You're seeing that uh, with respect to yields, markedly higher to the highest level since early March. <clears throat> and now the Fed decides Derby 
Will McKee have the last question or the second to last question? I'll have the third from last question. We're going to definitely we're definitely going to mix things up here. I hear Uh, that's the whisper from the room. We're also seeing the dollar sell off, although less than before. One oh eight twelve. Just to reset, we are about to hear from Fed Chair Jay Powell after they did not raise rates for the first time in 15 months after 10 consecutive meetings of rate hikes. Now they are not hiking, but they are indicating they are going to hike at least twice more before the end of this year. Their work is not done. That was very clear in their statement. And now the question will be, why did they not hike today? If they were so convinced of that momentum, what was the holdup as they tried to get consensus? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, Top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.